Welcome to the Heart of a Man podcast. We're a movement of men in central Indiana pursuing meaningful friendships, faith, and character. If you'd like to learn more about us, the facility we're building designed for the energizing and growth of men, or would like to financially partner with us in our mission to rebuild the American family one man at a time, please visit us at heartofaman.org. I'll start with a hard story. I was 17. Um, I was living in Geneva, Illinois. Uh, I was a junior in high school, and my mom and dad moved to, uh, we, were, we were living in a western suburb of Chicago, and so they had a, uh, a business they ran in northwest Indiana. It was about an hour and a half drive from Geneva, Illinois to northwest Indiana, and so they would do that every day. And then when I was a junior, they said, let's rent an apartment. We'll stay there all week and then come home on the weekends. And so they did that. And so Monday through Friday, I wouldn't see them. And I'm a junior in high school. So I was set up for failure, not by them, but just because of those circumstances, I was set up for failure. And I certainly did. And so I, I, uh, I had played sports freshman and sophomore year. I had a lot of pain in my shins from football in particular. Um, and we didn't have orthotics then. So, uh, you know, I had really bad shin splints. My knees hurt really bad. And so my junior year, I'm like, I'm done with sports. My feet hurt. My knees hurt. My shins hurt. I just don't want to play anymore. So I quit sports. My parents move away. And I start working in a grocery store at night after, after classes end. And I come home to a lonely house. Meet a freshman girl named Terry. Um, and you know where that's going, right? So I've got, I've got all the emotional setup for this. I'm away from sports, which I loved. I'm away from the guys I should be around. And I'm around this girl all the time. And pretty soon, yep, we're doing exactly what you think we're doing. We're at my empty house and starting to have this sexual relationship. And it didn't take very many months when she got pregnant. And um, I didn't know what to do, but her mom knew what to do. She, what to knew, she knew what to do. And they, they took her to have an abortion, and I just sort of went along with it all and, and just moved on. Life moved on. We dated till we were out of high school, and then we broke up after that, and that was the end of that relationship. And I look back at that, and I've mourned that so many times, you guys. The brokenness in my heart is beyond words. Uh, I've confessed this sin to numerous men. This isn't the first time I've told this story. Um, but I've been in small groups, I've been in larger groups, I've confessed this, I've asked God for forgiveness, uh, He's forgiven me, um, but I can tell you it's not the right thing to do, and it wasn't the right thing, and if I do it again, I would never do it again. Uh, it was wrong. Everything about it was wrong. Everything was about it. So when I look at David and I say that story, David was an adulterer, David was a murderer, yeah, I am too. I'm him. I'm that same guy. So I'm not going to teach the lesson from a platform of righteousness and holiness tonight because I can't. I can't stand on that platform. I don't have that. But I can teach it from a platform of a guy who has been broken, who has failed, and who has sinned, and who has aggrieved his father and lost something along the way, has paid the penalty of my sin, I've watched the consequences of my sin, and I've watched God use my life for his purpose and has used me and redeemed me for something bigger than what I thought he would. So I can teach you from that, and so I will. And so what I hear, I hope you'll hear tonight, and what my prayer for you tonight is that you will recognize your sexuality, and you'll give that back to God, and you'll release that to him. You'll let him have power there, not you. That's my prayer for you tonight. And for you guys that have same-sex attractions, everything we talk about tonight applies to you. Everything. 
Everything does. And I pray you will have the exact same heart that you'll give your sexuality back to God and stop using your same-sex attraction as an excuse for having sex with men because it's not an excuse, and neither is any of us. We have no excuse to have sex with women outside of marriage. None of us do. So let's move to God in prayer, and let's get started with this lesson. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you. There's not a man in this room that's not failing here, Lord. It hasn't failed here, it hasn't broken here, it hasn't died here, it hasn't lost ground here. Not one of us. We're all hurting in this space, Lord, and we need redemption. We need restoration. We need to be healed, and we need to gain control, and we need to have your power in us, and we need you to lead us in this area, Lord. You gave us this. This is from you, and we need you, Lord. Like We need you now. So please don't abandon us, Father. Help us understand our sexuality and use it for the purpose you gave it to us. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to start looking at this whole story, and we're going to see it pretty clearly in three steps. David's progression to failure, David's attempt to hide his sin, and David's need for forgiveness. So we're going to start in this progression. There's a five-step progression here that follows, and you're going to watch David move down this path. You'll follow the same path if you want to. Watch the progression. Look at the outs you have. The first step, David gets himself into a very vulnerable position, just like I did. He's at home, and he's not with the soldiers. He's not where he belongs. God said, go fight the wars. Get all the pagans out of Israel. David, that's your job. And he blessed him in that. He gave him victory there. He won there. And when he was in that space, he was getting affirmation. He felt good about himself. He knew what his gifts were. He found his strength in that. He found his success in that. And that's where God showed him his success. His men around him admired him, and they honored him and respected him for his work in that space. And now he's not there. So you guys know what this feels like when you live in that space. You set, you're out of position you're not doing well, you're not succeeding, you're not getting affirmation, you're not getting respect, you're not feeling good about yourself, you're not in a place where you're emotionally healthy. You're weak, you're vulnerable, you know this space, right? And for guys like me who have just left the workplace, we are a dead sitting duck, right? I mean, I've spent 33 years getting my wins at work, man, and I got a lot of wins there. A lot of wins, right? A lot of affirmation, a lot of success, a lot of stuff happened well. And so, man, I'm used to that, being in that battle with the dudes, working hard, fighting, and you're used to that play. And then now you step out of that, and all of a sudden, man, I got to tell you, I can tell you guys. You know, I used to go to the gym, and yeah, I'd see the girls. Now I go to the gym, and I really see the girls. And I'm 59 years old, and you're like, does that ever end? No. No, I think it's worse, right, just to not discourage you. But, right, I mean, this is what you are. You're emotionally vulnerable when you move out of that space. And so you got to ask yourself, where am I emotionally vulnerable? What positions? Where, where are the places I get it set up where I'm emotionally vulnerable, where I'm at my weakest? Some guy said at night, I'm alone when I'm bored, when I'm drinking and alone. Right? Look at these spaces and know yourself. you got to know yourself. This is where you have to know you. What are those places for you, right? You have to identify those because that place where you get emotionally disconnected is where you're most vulnerable. We are designed for emotional connection. We are built for human connection. We're built for intimacy. We're built for relationship. 
God hardwired us for that way. And when you move out of that space, you are in a place where you are setting yourself up for sexual failure. No doubt about it. No question about it. This is step one. I'm setting myself up because I'm emotionally vulnerable. Where is that happening? Only you know. Only you know. Don't you find it uncanny that Jesus and his disciples never really talked about sex? You don't see it anywhere, do you? Jesus talks about lust, and I'll quote that, but they don't talk about it much. Why? Why? I'll tell you why. Because they spent three years with God. (laughs) Can you imagine being with Jesus sitting around a campfire, and he's like, Bill, thinking about Mary, huh? How'd you know that? (laughs) Sorry. And you're like, yeah, I kind of am. And he's like, what's going on, man? And he didn't say, you know, stop looking at Mary. He said, no, talk to me. What's, what's going on, man? What are you hurting about? What's hurting? And then he says, man, I haven't fished in a month, and I'm worried about my dad, and I don't feel like I'm helping at home, and I feel like a failure right now. And he's like, okay, now let's talk about that. So that's what he's talking about, right? That's where God's like, that emotional intimacy, that's what we need, you guys. That's where we need. And you got to know that. You got to have this place where your heart gets to be open in relational connection with other men, with other women, with your, with your spouse, with somebody. But if you don't have that place where that emotional, real connection is happening, you are not going to win this sexual battle ever. You'll never win. You have to find this place. David's son Solomon wrote these words, the purpose of a man's heart are deep water, and a wise man draws them out. And this is what he's talking about. Those things that are deep in your heart, they got to be drawn out. you got to draw them out. They've got to come out, because if they don't come out, that's when you're set up to fail sexually, guaranteed. With whom can you have a deep emotional connection with? With whom can you have a deep emotional connection Step two, David allowed his eyes to lead him. Got an emotional position, he's vulnerable emotionally, and now his eyes start to lead him. This is the second step for all of us. We get emotionally out of position, and then our eyes start to look around. Isn't it what happens? Our eyes start to look around. He looks around, he sees Bathsheba, right? And there's lots of questions on what she was doing and how she was doing and all that, and there's all kinds of speculation. There was a popular movie in the 70s that showed her as a bit of a slut and all this kind of thing, and I'm just going to say, I don't buy all that, you guys. From what I've read, Bathsheba was in a public ceremonial wash in her clothes, washing to be clean from her menstrual cycle, and she was in public view, and his his palace is the biggest place in the stinking city, so he sees everything, So he's probably looking at the public bath in Caesar, and she's the most beautiful woman there. That's probably what I think happened. You you can speculate about all the other stuff and believe all those stories that she's what she is and all that, and that that only thing that does is make you feel more right about you. I don't think that's what's going on here. So the problem with him is he let his eyes stay there. He let his eyes stay there. And what are your eyes? Your eyes are your on button. Just think about it that way. Your eyes are your on button. So if your eyes fix, boop, they just got pushed on. You get your eyes off, you got some shot at winning, some chance at winning. David wasn't good at this. How do we know David wasn't good at this? He already had like eight wives, right? So David was used to looking at a good, beautiful girl, and he's like, I'll take that one. And he, was, he seemed like a decent guy, though. He would marry him, and he was kind to him and all that kind of thing. But he didn't, he didn't really do that. He ignored God's commands. 
God said kings shouldn't take more than multiple wives. He said that. He told them that in Deuteronomy. Don't do that. And the Bible in Genesis, before all of those laws came, said the two should become one. So if you got six wives, how do you become one with one? So clearly he completely ignores two pieces of the Bible because he likes having sex with women and nobody stops him. He's the king. And you can imagine back then for men, that was kind of the law of the land. Just have as many as you want. So think about it. You're the king. The culture says have, have as many as you want. How many of you guys would be like, no, no, I'll just do one. I'm good with one. Okay. I'm not buying it. Neither did his son. His son went with 700 wives and 300 concubines. So his son watched his dad and said, that's good. I can do better. Right? So this is clearly a thing in the family. Right? Yeah. And, you, and, and Solomon had 300 concubines. I don't even know what a concubine is, right? So I'm like, what's a concubine? And it's like, what do you do with her? You know, and he's got, so do the math. There's a thousand of these girls. There's 365 days a week. So he's got to have a girl three times a day just to do, the, do a lap around once a year. You know, I mean, this guy's a frisky little fellow. I mean, this is, this, is, this is crazy stuff, isn't it? So this is in the genetics, right? These guys are liking what they got. And David likes what he's got, and so he's running with his eyes. He's letting his eyes do the work for him. You know what concubines are in modern time? It's called pornography. That's what it is, because you can look at as many women as you want. It's no different than Solomon. They were real women there. Now they're just on, 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 uh, on a computer. They're, they're, it's pornography. That's modern-day concubines. Your eyes are leading you. You're not in control. Your eyes are in control. So your eyes are leading you, you're letting them take control, and if you watch enough pornography, it's every bit as addictive as heroin. It's every bit as addictive as heroin, and if you don't stop, you will be addicted just like a heroin addict will, and you will never be able to get off unless you have a significant intervention in your life. And we've seen guys go through this, you can get off, but it costs a lot. Your life loses a lot of ground to have to get off, guys. Jesus said, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye is causing you to sin, gouge it out. So who have you been lusting over in your mind? What's her name? Write it down. Write it down. You need to stop looking. Confess it to Jesus. Say her name out loud, even if it's pornography. Say it out loud. Confess. Stop looking, number one. Second, confess, say her name out loud. Then beg Jesus for forgiveness. Beg him and plead with him. And then ask God to ask you, beg God to help you stop doing what you're doing. And then don't go back. Wherever your eyes were, don't go back. Don't go back. Jesus said, gouge him out. That's what he means, don't go back. So I can only imagine how that went with the disciples when they're walking a certain way and he's catching Peter and Peter was kind of a wild man. He's like, Peter, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm all good. He's like, no, you're not. I saw you checking her out. In fact, I could hear it in your mind, remember? Peter's like, dude, he's like, we ain't going that way. Every time we go that way, you start thinking about that girl. Stop it, Peter. And he's like, man, dude, this is rough walking with you. He's like, yeah, that's why we're out in the desert. You should be looking at all the girls, Peter. Stop it. Yeah. So you got to stop, you guys. Whoever's in your mind, stop lusting. Your eyes are leading you astray. you got to get your eyes under control. Number three, David made a conscious choice to move ahead. He's emotionally vulnerable. He let his eyes lead him. Then he chose with his mind to move ahead. He asked his people, who was she? And they came back and said, 
well, her dad is an important warrior for you, and her husband is a warrior for you. They're two of your best, actually. And her grandfather, he's one of your most trusted advisors. Oh, I do know those people really well. Now, this tells you where he is, because if someone did that to you at that point, and your brain, your executive functioning is working, you would go, this is bad. I need to shut this down right now. I'm going to get in a lot of trouble. This is going to cause a lot of problems. But his executive functioning isn't working. It isn't, is it? You know it's not, because at this point, he moves ahead. And that's what happens, guys. This is documented. When your hormones kick in, your executive functioning drops dramatically, and you move literally into a primal state of thinking, and you act like an animal, because you are. You're acting like a predator, because your mind and your chemicals and your body are treating your body that way. When you get to that stage, when you can't think right, you're in a bad place. You're in a bad place. You need to stop and think about who you're going to hurt before you get to the place where your eyes are turning on, right? You need to stop and think about who you're going to hurt. So the exercise tonight of writing down the name of the people in your life who you're going to hurt is really important. Keeping pictures of your wife and your children and your mother and your father and your aunts and your uncle and your mentor, keeping their pictures in places where you tend to stray are really important. Keeping their names in places where you tend to stray are really important because you need to think about who you're going to hurt when you're going to do this because the damage is going to be significant and it's going to be real and it's going to last a lifetime. It's not reversible. There's no reversible in this. There's no, oh, I can mop this up. It's not what happens, you guys. Lots of damage gets done. Families get ruined. Lives get ruined. Women get ruined. Children get ruined. 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 I'm sitting in groups with men these days, talking to men, young men, about their dads who have done this stuff to their families. I'm telling and mothers who have done this to their families. I'm telling you. The damage is irreversible. All you, do is de- all you do is manage the mess. You don't reverse it and fix it. doesn't happen. So if you're thinking you can skate around this, you're in, you're, you're compl- your thinking is completely wrong. It's completely wrong. Everybody gets hurt in this. You have to stop, think about the people, and then stop. In Hebrews 14, it says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So who will you hurt when your sexual drive shuts down your desire to care? Who will you hurt? Step four, David chose to use his power and his position to get what he wanted. And I think this is the heart of the story, quite frankly. David sends messengers to get Bathsheba, sends people that he knows to say, go get her which means he's using his royal position to control that woman. She has no idea what he wants. Her family's very connected to the king. They serve him, so she doesn't know what's going on. It would be likely for her to to respond to a messenger saying, come, come to see the king. That That wouldn't be uncommon for her to do that. That would be the right thing to do, as well as he's the king. So saying no to the king isn't something you typically did then. And so her saying no is not a logical outcome here. So people said, oh, she was kind of a slutty girl. She wanted all this. How do you know? Well, because she didn't protest. It doesn't make sense that she would. That's an illogical situation. That's not what's going on here. We see in Nathan's story to David that he describes this rich dude exploiting a poor dude. That's the point of the story. A rich dude exploited a poor dude. That's what he's saying 
here. That's what the point of this is, is that David is, is using a gross abuse of his power and position to exploit a woman. This happens all the time, guys. Men exploit women like this all the time, and most of us in this room have done it. We, the big names you know are these. Ravi Zacharias, Bill Hybels, Tiger Woods, Bill Clinton. These are names that we all know that we're clearly using their power and their position to exploit women. Clearly, no question about it. We see athletes do this commonly, trying to get, and these girls are, they're like, oh, these girls are trying to chase these guys. Yeah, okay, who's in control then? Yeah, the guy's in control. So he's exploiting her. Businesses and churches see this a lot. Emotionally wounded women in the business place and in the church, men in those positions of counseling, big, big, dangerous place. Because these guys have an opportunity to exploit these women that are emotionally struggling, right? You guys see it at work. Girl comes in. She's had a fight with her husband. She's crying. She's upset. Put her arm around her. Talk to her. Next thing you know, it's there's something going on. You're like, uh-oh, how did this go here? Yeah, that's what goes on. And who's exploiting who there? Yep, it's us. How about friendships? Guys gaining access to wives. I've heard this so many times. My best friend stole my wife. It's painful. They, gain, they, they, they take advantage, they exploit the friendship in order to gain access to another man's wife. They exploit the friendship. This is what we're talking about, right? Guys, we don't trust each other a lot because of that, because we know what's going on in our own stinking heads. We do. So you don't trust other guys because you're like, well, if he's thinking what I'm thinking, his wife's pretty stinking hot. And you're like, boy, dude, if he's thinking that about my wife, I don't want to be around my wife. Yeah. That's what goes on. And so what do we do? We don't get around each other because we don't trust each other. We don't trust our own sexuality. Sexually driven men become predators. That's what we are, guys. When we're sexually driven, when we're, our hormones are all dialed up, we're predators of women. It's not good. In Romans, it says, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. David ignored what God had wanted him to do with his sexuality, completely ignored God, never asked him, didn't check in, never bothered to pray. He had no desire to do that at all. Aroused men pushed God aside to eliminate any kind of moral restraint. My, my uh, college years, this was me to a dime. I grew up in the Catholic Church. I knew what the Bible said. I knew what God said. I knew the rules. I knew what God expected of me. And when I got to college, I'm like, I don't want to hear that stuff. I don't want those rules in my head. I don't care what they say. I know what I want, and I know where I'm going. And that's what I did. I put my head down, and I chased whatever I wanted to chase whenever I wanted to chase it. That is what we do. We drop our moral restraint. We push God out. We don't want to hear his voice so that we can chase whatever we want to chase and we want to do it, guys. That's how we get when we get sexually aroused. We are predators, and it's not good. How have you used your physical or positional power to get sexual results? How have you used your physical or positional power to get sexual results? And you think, well, if I'm married, I couldn't do that. Oh, man, us married guys are some of the worst. We use all kinds of head games and language and words and manipulation to try to get what we want out of our wives. Oh, don't think marriage is going to protect you from using your power and position with your wife. It's not true. You just have to be aware that that's in you and that's inside of you. And when you get to this point, you will become like that. So don't get to this point. The fifth and final step, David gave, got the sex that he wanted. Male sexuality is very destructive, you guys. 
David got what he wanted. He was, he was after one thing and he got it. It's destructive. Wars are started because of men and sex. Remember earlier when the two generals got in a fight? Abner and Joab got in a fight because Joab accused Abner of sleeping with his concubine? Yeah, all over sex. And he's like, what are you accusing me of? And they go, all about sex. Those two end up. Jerusalem, Israel, the fight between them started over sex. Yeah, it wasn't over who got the right to Jerusalem or whose king was more godly. It was two guys fighting about their sexuality. Sex is powerful, you guys. Homicides in homes are often driven because two men are fighting over sexual issues. It's bad stuff. It's powerful. It's destructive, but it's also productive. You think, wow, where did this come from? God gave us this power, you guys. This sexual power is from God. We have insane amount of power inside of us, and that power had a purpose, and that purpose was for us to experience the joy of new life. Children, he made us in his image so we could be co-creators with him to experience the joy of creating life and experience the love of a woman and the deep intimacy with her and the deepness of that and the richness of that. He wanted us to know how we love them because it shows us how he loves us. That's what that power was supposed to be used for. It's powerful. The Bible says this, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's the power he gave us. He's like, I want that sexual power to be used that way. And when it's used that way, incredible things are going to happen. So how will you steward the sexual power that God has given you? How will you steward it? It's no different than money. You've been given money. You have power. Steward it. You've been given sexual power. Steward it. Use it for God's glory. Don't let it consume you. Now we look at David's attempt to hide the sin. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. David couldn't hide it anymore. His affair is visibly going to show up. He's got to deal with the problem. He has no choice. Guys, many Americans choose abortion at this point. It's not the right choice. David wanted Uriah to sleep with her so he could hide that. It didn't work. Today, we don't have to do any of that. We just kill the babies. We don't have to even have them anymore. Just kill them. 60 million since the U.S. court in 1973 said it's okay to kill the unborn children. And you ought to read this crap online about people saying the Bible supports, doesn't support anti-abortion. The Bible doesn't say anything about abortion. Yeah, it doesn't use that word. But there's nowhere, nowhere where God's like, yeah, just kill the unborn baby. That's cool. That is not cool. And it doesn't say that anywhere in Scripture. So when you start coming up to say that, you'll see me fight, guys. Because I'm on the other side of that. I know what the pain and guilt of that lives like. You can't convince me it's right. There's nothing right about it. Sexual rights have now been lifted above religious rights in America. And if you don't think so, you need to wake up and open your eyes. Sexuality will kill Christianity in this country, and it's on its way now. Abortion started it, and the LGBTQ fight is going to finish it. It's literally going to finish it. Coaches, businesses, owners, teachers are all losing their jobs. Unrestricted sex requires God to be kicked out of our laws. And that's exactly what's going on in America. God's being kicked out of our laws so that the whole community can have sex any way they want it and kill the babies any way they want to. That's unbridled sexuality is now taking dominant position over moral restraint in our country. Religious moral restraint is now in second place to sexual freedom. 
Just read. You're going to open it'll open your eyes. You'll be shocked when you see it, right? This is where America's going. This is what we're doing, you guys. In Psalm 139, David wrote, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. David saw a baby thousands of years ago as a person before it was born. And when you go hear an ultrasound at 12 weeks and you hear the heartbeat, you tell me that's not a person. Just go. Tell me. I sat in a room with 300 people. We had a 12-week, a woman at 12 weeks pregnant. We turned the lights off. We put an ultrasound on. We scanned the baby in the mom's womb. You could see this little movement, and then we turned the audio on, and we turned the lights down, and you heard, and the whole room went, 300 people all at the same time went, and I've never forgotten it. The chills on my back right now and my head are unbelievable. I never forgot that moment because that little baby's alive at 12 weeks. Don't you tell me that's not a person. Don't you tell me that we kill him. It's wrong. We don't do that. That's a baby. Men, we need to protect our babies, not kill them. How might you be willing to help young women with unexpected pregnancies? It's the first place my son's ever served as Christians. They painted the basement of a crisis pregnancy center. They probably don't even remember it. It's the first place they served. And why would I go there? Because, yeah, I knew what I did was wrong. And I'm like, I'm not going to stay there, God. I'm going I'm to ask for your repentance. I'm going to go serve girls that are pregnant and that won't abort their babies because that is the right thing to do. The last thing we see with David tries to kill Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba. David thinks Uriah has his sexual appetite. And, in fact, we find out Uriah does not. Uriah was a good man. He was committed to God and his men. He put those guys above his sexual needs. Guys, men can be noble. We are noble. We rise to noble things, and we do noble things. We do great things. Men rushed into towers when they were collapsing to save people's lives, and they died. We watched thousands of firemen die and policemen die. That's noble. They weren't worried about sex because they were pursuing something bigger than they were. We do that, guys. That's how we're wired. That's the kind of power we have. That's who we are. When we live for something bigger, when there's something we value that's big, we will die for that, and our sexuality will fade from our mind. The only reason your sexuality consumes you is because you live in that petty space. You're not fighting battles bigger than you. Uriah was fighting in battles that were bigger than he was, and he was committed to God. He was committed to the soldiers, and he didn't walk away. That's the problem. If you got problem with porn and sexuality, you're miring in the muck. Get out of the pigsty. Fight for something bigger. Get into a bigger cause. Get engaged. There's babies dying that are being butchered. They need people to protect them. Go protect some children. This is what we do, guys, and we're wired for this. We're built for this. It's a battle we can fight, and there's one that God's called you to. Get up and go fight. Let's go. Uriah was an innocent man. He was killed. King David exploited Joab to kill him. Again, David exploiting the kingship, and others were hurt. Servants, messengers, soldiers died in this gruesome plot. Innocent people die when men sin, and the sexual sin makes the sin even bigger. Many people die when men, when men act out their sexual sin. Jesus died because of men. He was innocent. Many Christians die at the hands of innocence. 
innocent Christians being butchered because they're serving their God at a bigger cause. God doesn't say you're not going to die when you go fight that bigger cause, but you won't care. You'll want to die. Guys die for bigger things. In the tribulation, many of us are going to die. It's going to be scary, and it's coming soon. Jesus is coming back soon, and this tribulation is on its way. And we're going to need to fight, you guys. We're going to have to be engaged. Many will fall away when that time comes. And why will they fall away? Because they will not believe in Jesus. They will not call on his name. They'll turn away at the drop of a hat because they've not been engaged in their faith. They haven't learned to stand a fight. They can't control their sexuality. They're weak everywhere, and they will crumble when the tribulation comes. Do you want to be that guy? No. Death is not your end. Dying is noble. It is good. Jesus died. He's going to call us to die. God uses death for life. Jesus died so you would live. You will die so others live. Death is a gateway back to heaven. Without death, there's no access to heaven. You'll never get to God unless you die. Jesus made it so you could get there. That's why he died, so you can die now and do it for a noble cause. Don't be afraid to die. Be an innocent man that dies just like Uriah. Under what circumstances would you be willing to die for Jesus? What will those look like, guys? Now let's look at David's need for forgiveness. God sent Nathan to David, and God was deeply disappointed in David. He said, I'm deeply disappointed. And he sent Nathan to tell him, guys, God uses men to confront other men. And we have to have other men confront us when we're starting into a sinful lifestyle. But don't wait till you get so dark and deep. Guys, how do you connect with another guy and keep him from getting so far down that the confrontation, one of my best, best friends, one of my closest friends in Chicago, promise keeper, I went to, we did everything he did. We had men's ministry together. He left his wife. And I sat with him and I said, Dave, what are you doing? I mean, I couldn't use it. I was quoting it. I went, and he's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm gone, dude. I'm out. I've never seen him since. There was nothing I could do to talk to him, and I thought I had built enough relationship with him, but what I realized is I hadn't. It was one of those churchy relationships, lots of churchy words and churchy stuff, no depth, no heart, no getting into the deep weeds, no really talking to each other, no communicating about what was going on in his heart. I had no idea. How could he be a good friend, and I wouldn't know he was looking at other women? How could that be? You're not a good friend if you don't know when the guy's looking at another woman. You are not a good friend. You need to ask better questions. You need to be around more. And you need to talk more. You need to share more. Guys, you need to open your heart up so guys can help you before you get to the finish, before you screw it up. How are you at confronting your sin each day? How are you? Are you doing it daily? And then are you confessing it to another brother? There's got to be a guy in your life said, James said, confess your sins. Confess your sins to your brothers. Everybody disses the Catholics and says, oh, that confession thing's stupid. At least they're doing it. You aren't, right? Maybe you should. Maybe you should find another brother and tell him. And if you got to hide behind a closet door and you don't want him to see you, then do it. <laughs> Nathan used a powerful story. It was a shepherd. And David knew this story. He was a shepherd, a rich guy stealing a poor guy's sheep, man, like that David's blood boiled with anger when he heard that this rich dude with all these stinking sheep and you took the poor guy's sheep and gave it to the traveler you scumbag I mean, that guy deserves to be killed David was so enraged he was so enraged at that mistreatment 
Nathan knew how to confront him, knew exactly what to say to get him to deal with his guilt. We've got to be careful, guys, when you confront guys with sexual sin. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. Be careful. If you haven't built the equity with another guy and you start charging in because you heard me say go do it, mm, be careful. Men get violent. They get angry. And you poke at this space, you better be careful. You better be darn careful, and you better know what you're doing. You better know where you're going, all right? So I wouldn't play Nathan unless you're really sure God's calling you to play Nathan. Slick Christian stories and fancy Christian words aren't going to protect you from an angry man. Only the mighty, almighty God will. And if he sent you, you're fine. But if he didn't send you, you're on your own. Good luck. Nathan confronted David directly with his sin and the consequences. Can't miss what he said. I can't say it any better. Just listen to what he said. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king, David, over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord? By doing what is evil in my eyes. God's like, I gave you everything, everything. And all you had to do was ask, but you didn't even ask. God sees your sin, guys, and you break in his heart. He's like, why didn't you just ask? Just ask. I love you. So what are you trying to hide? What are you keeping hidden right now? What sin are you hiding David confessed his sin against God. He spoke it out. He did. He did a great job. He finally came clean. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from all my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire desire truth in my inner parts. You teach me wisdom in my innermost place. He confessed his sin. If you sin, you have to confess it to God. You have to confess. God sees every sin. That's what he wants, guys. He's begging him. He's asking for that. And God says, I will forgive you of the death penalty. David had not only murdered, he had an adulterous affair. The law was crystal clear. That guy deserved to be stoned to death twice. And God said, I'm going to forgive you of that. That is not what's going to happen to you. When God convicts you, will you repent or will you run? God forgave David, but he he did not remove the consequence of his sin. His his son died. His son died. His family was filled with murder from that point on. And his wives were slept with out in public. You'll read it next week. His wives, he had 10 concubines. They were slept with in public, out in the public, just like God said would happen, it happened. Why did God do this? Because people are without God. God did not let David's sin go on without consequences. There had to be consequences. Why? Does God do this? Because people are evil without God. Well, the world without God is evil. And without death, evil will prevail forever. Jesus makes death a pathway back to God. God allows sin to run its course so we can see clearly that life without God is hell. Life without God is hell. 
And that's what it is. He makes that crystal clear. So if he doesn't punish and let the sin run its course, you won't believe that you're away from God. You'll always believe that God is good and and it's all going to be fine. And it won't be. It's hell without God. Literally. God uses David and Bathsheba for his glory. Bathsheba is deeply hurting, you guys. She's deeply hurting. She's been molested. She's been removed from her home. She's been manipulated by the king. She's got fear of being stoned to death for adultery. Her husband's dead, and her first son is dead. She's struggling emotionally. She is a mess. Her life has been ruined by King David. And after confessing, something changes David. He's changed. Something changed. David goes to comfort Bathsheba. This is incredible. And God's plan unfolds. Solomon is born. This is an incredible moment, guys. Don't miss it. Empathy and compassion make a man incredibly valuable to God. A man whose heart is capable of empathy and compassion is deeply valuable to God. And something moved David to become empathetic towards his broken wife. And he's got eight of them. So what's one broken wife at this point? Well, this one mattered to him for some reason. God put it on his heart and changed him. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture. And maybe, just maybe, That was God's plan all along, was for David and Bathsheba to be together. And David short-circuited the plan. Maybe Uriah was going to be killed in battle, and they were supposed to get married. And that was supposed to be the plan all along. But he got in a hurry. When was the last time you got in a hurry and short-circuited God's plan? God's plan does happen. God gave them both a son to be king. God named him Solomon, and he renamed him Jedediah, God's beloved. Solomon means peace, the king of peace. And Jedediah means God's beloved. God loved Solomon. The wife of Uriah is in the genealogy of Jesus. Bathsheba's uh, role is in the genealogy. God chose Bathsheba, a woman grossly exploited by David, suffered immensely. There's no evidence of her failure. God said, that's the person I'm after. The brokenhearted are dear to me. God restores broken hearts, you guys. That's what's beautiful here. Jesus said, in the kingdom of heaven, the last will be first. The last will be first, the brokenhearted, the downtrodden, the mother of Jesus. Mary was not respected. She was viewed as a bit of a whore in her time, right? They weren't married. Joseph, she's pregnant, right? Think about that. The broken women God loves. Mary Magdalene, the first to see Jesus was Mary Magdalene, also a woman that was ill repute. God uses misunderstood and broken people. If you've been abused as a child or exploited by somebody, Listen to me, guys. If you've been abused as a child, if you've been exploited by somebody, God is telling you tonight that is not the end of your story. It's not. If somebody has deeply hurt you and ruined your life, God's saying, the brokenhearted are mine. This is not the end of your life. I've got you. If you've failed and you've hurt other people, and you've screwed up royally, God is saying, this is not the end of your story. I'm proof, you guys. I failed miserably, and he still chose me to stand here to tell you this story. How might you pray for God to use your messed up life for his purpose? Ravi Zacharias exploited therapists, massage therapists. Bill Hybels exploited women who came to his hotel room during meeting conferences. Bill Clinton exploited women as president of the United States in the Oval Office. Tiger Woods exploited waitresses. 
David demonstrated a gross abuse of his position, authority, and power by exploiting Bathsheba and murdering Uriah. As men, God has given us an incredible power and authority and ability to create life. He gave us these to help create a sanctuary on this earth filled with people who love and follow Jesus. We have to choose as Christian men whether we will live out our sexuality and be used by the devil or be used by God. The devil uses our sex to destroy our families and everything that God loves. But God designed and empowered us to co-create with him, to use our sexuality to draw us close to our wife and to raise our children who we love and who will love Jesus. That's what that power is for. And prior to the return of Jesus, which he's coming soon, people will pull away from God and the evil we will see in the story of David will be, this will be normal. And is it not already? This is becoming normal. Men, we will not be able to lead our families through this time of tribulation if we cannot learn to bridle our sexual power. We've got to learn to get it under control. We must help each other now because of men of God, our sexuality has to be under full control by God so that we can stand the test that's coming in the tribulation. Guys, if you don't think the tribulation's coming and Jesus isn't coming back, you're not reading the Bibles. There's a time coming and it's going to be much harder than this. And if your sex, sexuality is controlling you, you're going to be in serious trouble of falling away from your faith. Now is the time to get a hold of your sexual power and turn it back to God. This is our time, you guys. What will you do tonight to face the reality of your sexuality and get it under God's control? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you, and we praise you. Father, we need this. We need this power, and we need it under your control. We need you, Lord. Help us. We need victory here. We need strength here, Lord. We need you. Help us bond together as men, as holy men of God. Set aside for your purpose. Lead us out of the sin and draw us to you, Lord. Give us strength and courage and an ability to win every time in this space, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, thank you for staying with me. God love you guys.